In the name of the crucified and risen Christ. Amen. Some insist that there is no such thing as bad publicity. But I wonder if this rich man was glad in the years after his encounter with Jesus that his name never made it into the Gospels. Some figures, though they appear only briefly, are remembered by name. Zacchaeus, who climbed a sycamore tree to get a better view of Jesus. Blind Bartimaeus, crying out from the side of the road near Jericho. Caiaphas, a high priest who cared more about his temple than his God. Pontius Pilate, a provincial governor whose name we recite every Sunday, the good and the bad. And then some like this man whose story survived, but whose name is lost to us. Nonetheless, we know him, and not just from the Gospels, though this story occurs in three of the four. We know him because we likely know people like him, or maybe we are like him, which would not be so surprising, given that by the world standards, virtually every person in this room is rich. But the truth of the matter is he's a good guy, as many of us are, as the world judges such things. A good guy, good people. How do we know? In his case, for starters, he isn't merely curious about Jesus as Zacchaeus was. He runs to meet him. He also has an eagerness for doing good that's admirable. And he knows Jesus is good, even if he doesn't yet accept or know Jesus' full identity as the Son of God. But I suspect he's not alone in that either, even in this room. So a man who wants to connect with Jesus, who wants to know how to live his best life, as some would say, but make it a life so good that it leads to an eternity of goodness. He's a way above average good guy. Jesus is in fact glad to meet him and after teasing him about calling Jesus good, though the man isn't wrong about that, says, well, you know the commandments, right? And recites all the things from the top 10 that we're not to do. Murder, adultery, defrauding people, stealing, testifying falsely. He also adds the positive one about honoring our mothers and fathers. Yes to it all this man says, and he is no recent convert to righteous living, for he says, I've been doing all that for as long as I can remember, since I was a kid. With his lifelong ingrained integrity, he's probably well ahead of some of us. But there's a funny wrinkle in this story, the clue to what will follow. The man asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. What must I do? Or, as Jesus reflects back to him by asking about those particular commandments, what must I not do? In every instance, though, 
It is the man's own actions that determine his level of achievement. These commandments are all about what he does or does not do. Curiously, Jesus doesn't ask him about the first part of the Ten Commandments. You remember those, the ones about loving God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. Jesus doesn't ask him about that until he does, until he does. But first, he looks at this man with love, sees his eager face as he kneels before him, and his growing assurance that he is on his way, on the right way. I wonder, knowing how the story goes, if Jesus looked at him with love the way we look at a child when we know we have to deliver unhappy or difficult news. Well, here comes the word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. I tell you what, Jesus says, you lack one thing. So go and sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. Jesus' command to the man isn't, at its heart, actually about possessions, though we shouldn't relax just yet. It is about that first commandment, loving God with his whole heart and worshiping nothing and no one else. This man can forswear things he wasn't inclined to do anyway, murder, defrauding people, but love God more than anything? More than anything? That's too much, even when in this case, the anything is just stuff. But turns out that stuff means everything to this man. So he who came to Jesus with such eagerness leaves now shocked and grieving. He who ran to Jesus walks away slowly with shoulders slumped in grief. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't make this particular ask of anyone else. This is the only time we hear him say, sell it all and then give the money to the poor. But Jesus does ask every would-be disciple to place God above all else. Here and to every would-be disciple, he insists that God come first. For every time he calls anyone, including us, he says, follow me, follow me, which always means something or someone will be left behind or need to be given away or forsworn. It's a nice touch that we're told the man had many possessions. I love the word because, of course, possessions have a remarkable ability to possess us as we conflate our needs with our desires. It was a problem back in Jesus' day, it's a problem now. But other things may also possess us. What might they be for you, for me? Maybe it's something that clearly harms us or others, but maybe some seem like maybe they're okay. 
The harmful ones, addictions of all kinds, fit that category. Greed and selfishness. But what about the ones that seem like maybe they're good or at least neutral? Certain relationships, perhaps. Certain sets of beliefs about ourselves or about others. Or maybe it's our insistence, one many of us share with the man who came running to Jesus, that we are what we do, what we accomplish, what we do and what we can achieve, which stands in direct contrast with Jesus' words just a few verses back, which means for us, we heard them last week in the gospel, that we actually need to be like children who can't do much except, of course, return love for love, ask for what they need, and live a life of dependence on those who love them and the world in which they find themselves. So it may indeed be easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man. But honestly, no animal could get through that needle's eye, not a mouse, not an elephant. No human being, whether rich or poor, though that camel's hump used for hoarding fat for scarce times, the way we perhaps hoard other things, would make the attempt especially painful and especially ridiculous. So the disciples ask, then who can be saved? And in asking that, they have already begun to glimpse the answer. No one. No one. Not on their own, not by our own doing, not by our righteousness or good deeds. Little children get a head start, maybe, but then they grow up. For mortals, it is impossible. Full stop. But not for God. For with God, all things are possible. We are all dependent on the grace of God. So what are we to do? Jesus knows none of us can or will truly give away everything, though I hope we understand from this passage that we can and should loosen our grip on any number of things and move closer to dependence on God. Even the disciples, the first 12, they gave up a lot, but not all. Not until they saw Jesus, the one who had everything, give it all away even his whole life. Sympathizing with our weaknesses, Jesus, though in the form of God, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and gave himself away on the cross, gave himself away and gave the treasure of his life to us poor creatures that we might receive the gift of new life. With God, truly, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible for this rich man and for us all. Until at the last, we are fully possessed by God. In the name of the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.